Welcome to The Rooster Crows, a podcast about life and death and everything in between. I'm your host for today, Roberta Howie. Today, we are continuing our discussion on MAID with our two-part series. It's medical assistance in dying and how we might connect with death and dying in society. In part one, we explored what MAID is and isn't and how you might encounter MAID when discussing end-of-life care. If you haven't caught that episode, I encourage you to go back and take a listen, as today we have part two. We have two fantastic voices for you, one on disability and the other on how we as society encounter death as a whole, including with MAID. And a quick note that, like our title suggests, we'll be having some pretty frank discussions about disability and terminal illnesses and, well, dying. So listener discretion is encouraged. Welcome to MAID, part two. When I first started researching this topic over the summer, I knew there were several voices I would have to include for us to really engage with MAID carefully. Medical assistance in dying, and indeed all of -of end-of-life care, is a topic that impacts all of society, and I did not want to leave anyone out. This would have meant it would be a 40-part series, and while I'm not opposed to that, there were two voices that I really wanted to include for today. The first is from the disability community. You may recall last episode that we discussed the story of Sophia, who's a woman in Scarborough who did not have a terminal illness, but through a combination of her disability and falling through several cracks in society, she chose MAID, and she died back in February of 2022. That story has been on my mind since then. After reaching out to a few advocates for their insights, we are fortunate to have Heather Morgan joining us for today. She is a renaissance woman of her age. She is a life coach and a high-risk doula, a disability advocate, a pastor, a public speaker, and she uses a powered wheelchair due to her health conditions, and on top of all that, is a caregiver to several people with disabilities as well. When I was talking about MAID, I knew that I had to talk to someone like Heather, and I'm grateful that she's able to join us today. How did you first learn about MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying? So I think MAID has been a slowly growing reality for me. When it was first being discussed in 2015 and 2016, I was, ironically, I guess, dealing with the severe mental illness of a family member and my own disabilities uh, took a dramatic downturn that year as well. So it was only on the outside edge of my consciousness to begin with. Um, But as time went on, and especially as we approached March of 2021, that changed. By that point, I was quite tuned into the disability community and I had been listening to people's firsthand lived experiences even before the expansion of MAID. And I had started to realize that the ways in which this uh, was being talked about could be a really big issue. Um, I'm a pastor, as you said, and I was scrolling Twitter one day back in late March or April of this year when I ran across yet another post by a person with a disability who felt that MAID was their only option. And something in me prompted me to reach out at that point, and I said something along the lines of, like, no obligation and no expectation of what decision you're going to make, but if you want a pastor to walk with you in your journey, I'm, I'm here. And I was really shocked and surprised, uh, but this person took me up on it. 
And I've spent the last six months coming to understand quite intimately the very real challenges we've created for those with disabilities with our current legislation. One of the first things we talked about when we were doing this episode was that last episode we had Dying with Dignity on and they talked about some of the reasons that they felt made was an important initiative and I I felt your body recoil at that it was like a visceral reaction and I'm wondering if you have if you're willing to share some of your concerns around made and other assisted death initiatives that are starting to grow worldwide. When MAID was first introduced in 2016, it was very much designed for those who would die in the reasonably foreseeable future. And when they did that, it put significant constraints on who could access it and for what reasons. And while I would personally not choose to end my life in that way, and I have some bigger concerns about some of the systemic issues and assumptions that might be affecting those decisions, I can accept that for some people this might be their genuine wish and I can see the reasons why someone might fight for it. But as MAID has expanded, that safeguard of a reasonably foreseeable death has been removed. And while there's still a 90-day wait period for individuals who don't meet that criteria to access MAID, this change is really concerning both for those with non-life-threatening disabilities and especially for those with mental health disorders. So one of the key reasons for that concern is this. Your guest from last month from Dying with Dignity spoke with conviction about her assumption that those who were attempting to access MAID who did not have a reasonably foreseeable death would be able to access all supports necessary before making that choice. That is a great theory. And I honestly think it fuels our acceptance of MAID in Canada, but the problem is it's not actually worked out in real life. In Canada, in fact, there's no requirement that treatment has has to be tried and shown to be futile before someone can qualify for MAID. Not for those with mental health disorders, not for those with chronic pain conditions, not for those with other complex disabilities. It doesn't even have to be shown to have been offered and denied. Um, it, it just, there's no requirement. Um, and, and I think when it comes to disability, it's really important to nuance this a bit more because when most Canadians think about health and healthcare, there's this tendency to assume that there is a clear and unambiguous process of acquiring healthcare for everything and for everyone. It goes like this, and it's a very privileged position, unfortunately. You have symptoms and you go to your doctor and your doctor runs some tests and these tests show a clear diagnosis and that diagnosis opens out to a number of treatment possibilities and you try those in a logical and predetermined scientifically based order and based on your particular presentation and so on. And so while that might be true with a condition such as cancer, it's not true for something like EDS or chronic pain or the myriad of conditions that exist without names or treatments even to this day. And for many of those uh, individuals, even just that first step of go to the doctor and get your doctor to run tests, they can run into roadblocks with the process as early as that because they are disbelieved and they are dismissed and they are just pushed out of the system. 
And so in these cases, we actually can't confirm that any individual has had access to all the supports necessary because it can take years to work your way through the healthcare system far enough to find someone willing to think creative enough, creatively enough about your condition to suggest something that might help. And that's if you ever get to that point. These are all, I think, massive considerations that we need to have, especially as much of the conversation around MAID has been for people that have a terminal illness like cancer, but there seems to be this sort of shift in the conversation now that disability is put on the table as an option. And with that, as a major part and advocate within the disability community, as a member of the disability community, one of the weirdest clubs to be a member in, and some that many don't know that they're a member in in the first place, what is something you would like the general public to consider when we do discuss made as it comes up more and more nowadays? So I think I have two big concerns that I want to raise here. The first is to question how our systemic ableism plays into our conversations about MAID, especially now that the criteria for MAID has been and continues to be expanded. So the idea of systemic ableism is that all of us on some levels, just like with racism, carry this idea that, that a good body, a healthy body, a right body to have looks a certain way, acts a certain way, responds in a certain fashion, um, and that that is, that is the ideal or the norm or the correct way of being in the world. But um, disability challenges that. Right. And so it and it challenges it on so many different levels. And so I think um, we've got these these inbuilt assumptions that uh, when disability shows up, we can feel very um, much like a failure. We can feel like we're a great big burden on our families. We can feel all these things. And, and that is systemic ableism at work. So. As a result, there are many assumptions about what constitutes a good life or a dignified life or death. And when when people talk about these things, um, there is this reinforced way of of looking at disability that that precludes the option um, for us to be able to know how to deal with it when it shows up in our own lives. There's there's so many times as a coach for those with disabilities, um, which is one of the many jobs I've done over the years, um, where I've discovered that people have no theological, no intellectual, no bodily wisdom even to turn to, to help them view disability as anything other than something to be avoided at all costs. And so I think for everyone in Canada, um, as a disabled person, I'm concerned about the impacts of ableism um, in this discussion. My second concern is around what we mean by some of the words that are used ubiquitously in uh, the topic of made. We typically think of choice in terms of freedom or rights. Um, this is a very enlightenment idea for us, but what forms our choices is often left unstated. So it's really important that we bring those to the forefront, the socioeconomic, the cultural, the political issues that are behind what we think of as choice. Um, 
For example, what decisions are we getting to make and what decisions are being made for us? Um, for decades, the disability movement has pushed for having real options, options that are the same for everyone, choices that are the same for everyone. The choice and the option of having good health care, good pain management, good support of people around us, good housing, good autonomy over ourselves and our own decisions. Otherwise, this idea that MAID gives choice is just empty and symbolic. Because what happens when people don't have access to good advocates? What happens when healthcare professionals deem the client's life to be of such a low quality that they decide that the client would be better off left dead? Um, we saw this a little bit with COVID in that there were um, contingency plans that were made in most of the Western world around what happens when we run out of ventilators. And one of the answers was that those who showed up at hospitals who were already ventilator dependent would have their ventilators taken from them and given to someone who they, were, who they deemed to be more worthy of life. Um, and that's a terrifying thing that those with disabilities live with all the time um, is, you know, people going into the hospital uh, with pneumonia and their doctors deciding that they just need palliative care. They don't need antibiotics because of the level of disability they live with. You know, they it would be it would be more gentle and more kind and more compassionate to them if they just allowed them to go peacefully. Um, and that's, that's not the same as having equal access to care. And, and that leads to the question, of course, about who is worthy and who is not worthy of these, these choices and of this care and of this compassion. Who gets to determine that worthiness? And what are the implications of a lesser worthiness on care and around support and um, on something like access to your own toilet or to the capacity to leave your home or to autonomy to make your own decisions. These are all issues that those with disabilities have been fighting for um, for decades. And, and it's clear that the fight has to continue because here we are having this conversation again when we're talking about MAID, we are not just talking about MAID in a vacuum. It is connected with disability and it's connected with the health care system and it's connected with poverty. How many people are we talking about that use MAID are actually using MAID because they have exhausted all their health care options and they say this is literally the only option physically left on me on this planet and how many are using it because they're being denied the access to health care that could make their life better. And so all of this is connected. And I wonder if you wanted to expand a little bit on just how all of these layers keep working together and we can't solve one without solving the other. Yeah. My biggest concerns about MAID come down to my work with um, those who are incredibly impoverished and disabled, um, who lack diagnoses and therefore lack any options for treatment and care. And these individuals are, they're denied access to doctors, to pain medication, to treatment plans, to mobility devices. They're unlikely to qualify for necessary home care. 
they certainly have no access to accessible housing because accessible housing is almost impossible to acquire because of the systemic ableism that I talked about earlier. Um, most, if not all of them, are lacking social supports. Their pain, their housebound realities, and their disabilities uh, cut them off further and further from anyone who might advocate for them or alongside of them. And this doesn't even begin to address the ways in which the experience of trauma so often intersects with disability. And we know that when people experience trauma, it changes the way in which they can interact with uh, authorities and all the rest of it. Um, but even when disability isn't caused by a traumatic incident or incidents, the experience of engaging for months or years with a healthcare system that sees you as unworthy has traumatic implications. And I've experienced those myself and I've seen other people experience them, them tenfold because they don't have the privileges that I have in terms of being white, in terms of being um, from a middle-class family, in terms of um, being well-educated and all of those things. You know, English is my first language. My accent sounds like I don't have an accent in Canada. Um, all of those things made it easier for me to access healthcare and I still have trauma from the experience of trying to access healthcare as someone with a very, very rare, undiagnosable condition. And so the more you exist um, as poor, disabled, otherwise marginalized, the more likely you are to have these kinds of traumatic encounters with the healthcare system. Um, and what that means is when when others decide how seriously they need to take you and your self-reports of pain, when others decide uh, to what extent you deserve treatment for your situation, when others blame and shame you for what you're going through instead of acknowledging the systemic issues far outside of um, an individual's autonomous control at work in all of this it, it layers problem after problem after problem on top of it to the point where people end up i think utterly reasonably in a place of utter hopelessness um i think i think all of us would end up utterly hopeless at that point um, and yet it is a situation that we have created ourselves as a society. It does not have to be like this. And knowing that it doesn't have to be like this, we are still talking about the future of MAID. It does not sound like MAID is going away anytime soon, but legislators are still considering the scope of it, the regulations around it, and ways to make sure that MAID is an ethically decent option for those that do want to use it. If you were able to go to the legislator today and say, here's what we need to see for the future of MAID, what would you like to see for the future of MAID as someone that has seen so many deal with the pitfalls of it? Yeah, so I think, first of all, um, for us to truly have a safe option for MAID in this country, we need a vastly expanded social safety net. Uh, a vastly expanded social safety net, sorry. Um, we need universal basic income. We need universal pharmaceutical coverage. 
We need accessible and affordable housing for all who require it. We need full funding for all home renovations needed for those with disabilities to be able to live with dignity. And we need a vastly expanded home care network that can supply all of the care needed for those with conditions whose conditions do not necessitate their treatment in hospital. As uh, very famous uh, Canadian disability advocate Gabrielle Peters writes, where is the choice for us to live with this dignity? Second of all, we need a way for patients to get around gatekeeping doctors. Right now, if your family doctor doesn't believe your self-reported symptoms, for whatever reason, they can render it impossible for you to access care. The same can be true with a referral to a specialist. If that specialist decides that your condition is not treatable by then, them, you have almost no recourse in Ontario. This puts patients in an untenable position because uh, especially if they live far away from major teaching hospitals, which let's face it is a lot of Canada's population. So we need a way for individuals to be able to self-refer to a chronic condition network that can help connect patients directly to the caregivers who specialize in their conditions in a timely fashion. I'm not talking 18 months. I'm not talking a year. I'm talking like six weeks to three months. It needs to be fast because one of the things that happens for all of us is that when symptoms aren't treated in a timely fashion, they get worse and it becomes harder and harder to treat those symptoms until the point at which you end up with lifelong additional disability that you didn't need to have, but that has happened simply because you have fallen through the cracks. And finally, legislature, legislators need to actually listen to disabled self-advocates about their experiences and about the experiences of their friends and peers on this issue. During the committee hearings in 2020 and 2021 on the expansion of MAID, approximately 150 disability groups across Canada who exist separately for all sorts of reasons and rarely agree with each other on most topics came together to protest this move. There was a letter signed um, that I sent you. You can put it up in the show notes if you want. Um, that uh, public letter discussing just how concerning this is to those with disabilities. Um, collectively, they were given a very short period of time to speak in relation to the uh, proponents of MAID at these um, committee hearings. And in the end, there was no indication that anything that was said was considered in the final legislation. And as an aside, it's not just um, Canadian disability advocates who are concerned about it. The UN also spoke out against this change for the, um, the voicing the same concerns that those with disabilities would be put at risk because of these changes. And, and this lack of listening to those with lived experience has to change. Disabled individuals are the experts on our own bodies and our own lived experiences. We are the frontline service users. We understand the flaws and the cracks in the system better than anyone else because we lie grasping at the edges of those canyons, hanging on for dear life more often than not. But so far, that lived experience has gone unheeded, and I think that all Canadians are poorer for it. I wonder if you have any final words or any final thoughts that you would like to share with listeners of this podcast, wherever they are. 
One of the things I, I talk about when I do trainings on disability uh, for churches and for church leaders um, is I, I ask them how many of you uh, are in a, a, a deep friendship, a deep family relationship with someone with a disability. Um, and, and sometimes I find out that, you know, a bunch of the people in the room are, and sometimes I find out that people uh, in the room have no relationship with anyone with the disability. And, and so I think, um, if you're, if you're trying to make sense of this, look around you and ask yourself, where, where are the folks with disabilities in my life? Am I even in relationship with them? And, and I'm not saying go to them and ask them what they think about it. They don't need to carry that work for us. Build relationships, genuine relationships with people with disabilities um, and start to pay attention to what life looks like for them. Start to listen to the concerns that they have. Start, you know, start following people on Twitter who have disabilities. Gabrielle Peters is a great person to start with. Um, and she, you know, once you start following her, you can see who else you need to follow. Um, but, but starting to listen to the everyday lived realities of those with disabilities, um, just listen no need to comment just just listen take it in and start to think like how does this complicate the story you've been told and what has been missing from the conversations you've been a part of and is it possible that that any of that story needs to change um i think that that's possibly the best thing to leave people with is that challenge our discussions around MAID, it can sometimes be important to remember that it's not the only way to die. Humans have been dying for as long as they have been living. What does it mean to help our loved ones die in peace or in dignity? I chaired the uh, 19, I think it was 1996, commissioned uh, committee from the United Church, and we did a report then on uh, assisted suicide, medical assisted suicide. This is the Reverend Dr. Ann Simmons. She is one of the United Church of Canada's experts on death and grief, having served as a nurse and a hospital chaplain and a teacher to many spiritual leaders, including myself, in helping people go through dying and mourning our loved ones as community. And, met, and I made a presentation on behalf of the United Church at that time to the Senate committee, and at that time it was not passed uh, by the Senate, and we did not actually recommend it. Our committee did not recommend it either. So here we are, how many, 25 years, 25 years later. There is, in my experience, having worked with so many people and families where people were dying before MAID was available, and with my own parents who um, died somewhat naturally without, without MAID, there is something that happens for us and for the person who's dying in that vigil as we become accustomed to the notion that the person is dying. We have an opportunity to hopefully, and sometimes it takes some um, outside support of a pastoral person 
spiritual care provider to help the families to say some of the things they need to say by way of saying goodbye, by way of maybe um, finding some forgiveness or dealing with things that they maybe haven't dealt with in relationships or another way. And I think it feels more slow and gentle. Now, before MAID was uh, legal, I was in the intensive care unit actually many times when someone was removed from life support and given medication so that they wouldn't suffer. Now, that is not quite the same thing in my mind because they've already been with life support taken beyond when they would naturally die. So often what was happening was it was very clear they might have been on life support for two, three, four weeks, sometimes longer. They were not getting better and they were, I mean, there were times when they were either given the option, the family given the option, or in times when the doctor simply had to say, uh, you know, we have to take this person off life support, and so they were given enough medication that they, they knew they wouldn't suffer when it was happening. So I, I have seen that. Anecdotally, I've certainly heard from families who have had made and have been very happy and felt that it was a very gentle process. So I'm mixed about it. I'm mixed about it because I also think that on one hand, uh, it is up to somebody. At the same time, I feel that we, it may, it may also, it's not just about choice, but it's about control. And I think we like to think that we're in control of life and death. And the truth is we're really not. We really, really are not. I think the pandemic showed us that, that we're not in control of life and death. So I do think sometimes, and, and this is, I think, somewhat documented, documented certainly anecdotally and, and also in the literature, that uh, people will apply for MAID and be approved for MAID, and then they actually don't use it. And I think sometimes that's because it's like feeling I'm in control and then realizing that actually life is precious even when you're not 100%. I mean, I think that's the, the dilemma for me. Life is precious, and yet we treat life in our culture as if it's not precious. And where do we find a place in the middle? I'm not really sure. I think this has probably been the hardest struggle around this conversation, is that it is so personal. It's so intense. It's... I think one of the reasons we're, we're here in the conversation, though, because we're such a death-denying culture, it feels to me like we deny, deny, deny death, and then when there's absolutely no choice, okay, well, let's get it over with real fast. So instead of this being a recognition in our culture that death is a part of life, to me this is a recognition that we don't actually understand death as a part of life. That it's something that has to be done quickly, get it out of the way, and um, and I don't think that that's necessarily helpful. At 70-something, it's absolutely true that I am old enough to die. I've lived, you know, what is it, three score and ten. I mean, there's something biblical about that, right? So I've had a good life, so I am old enough to die. And as you know, when my 
five-year-old granddaughter died tragically. After she died, I said, well, you know what? We actually are all old enough to die. Mm -hmm. We really are all old enough to die. Like, it can happen to any one of us at any time. Mm -hmm. So, for me, it's more of an issue of we need to befriend death. We need to have the conversations about the fact that we're old enough to die and that we will die. And that medical science, we can't give it all over to them because that's, of course, what we're doing here. We give it all over to them when we have a disease and we give it all over to them then when there's nothing more they can do and they, you know, just um, have made. At the same time, I'm also very aware, as I am old enough to die, that I think, well, if I'm in a position where I feel like my suffering, pain from a cancer or, or something else, is so unbearable that I would want this, it's very hard for me to say now, there was a time when I was, felt I could say this, I can't say it now, uh, that it shouldn't happen for anybody. Because I do not know, and I think as I get closer to my death, which will happen eventually, I wonder if I would get to that place where the pain would be that unbearable. Having said that, and I know you're talking to palliative care people, in all my years as a palliative care nurse, because I was and in, in chaplaincy in palliative care, I never saw anybody whose pain could not be controlled by medication and that you know we're talking 34 years ago and you know they've got even better medication now i i think of how for like the past 80 years or so especially in north america we've made it almost a cliche now where you see it on like the simpsons or cartoons of putting grandpa in the old folks' home and ignoring them until they die. Right. And some of that is simply people are not able to be home to take care of their elderly. That isn't, that's not possible when they right. have to take care of their own jobs and other families. Yes. And at the same time, it's almost this idea that the closer someone is to death, the more we want to push them away from us and not deal with it. Right. And then when someone does die, we call the funeral home, the funeral home picks up the body, hopefully from the hospital, so they, we, God forbid, we have a dead body in our house. And then the funeral's held at either a church or synagogue or a funeral home, somewhere very removed from the home and the community. And then they are either cremated or buried, and that's the end of that conversation. Yeah, and, and one of the things that you're picking up on that leads to our culture being so uh, afraid of death and unfamiliar with death is that we've t we have taken it further and further away. And of course the pandemic made this absolutely terrible for families that... Um, Families weren't able to be with their loved one when they were dying. They were taken off, cremated. You know, it's really important when somebody dies, as much as possible, to be with them if you can. And people are often afraid of that. My experience is, and this is what, if nothing else, encourage people to be with people when they're dying. I realized so early on in my nursing career, because I grew up, just like anybody else, sort of afraid of death. 
But I remember as a young nursing student being fearful. And then we were exposed to people who were dying. And actually, it's not nearly as frightening. And it's about befriending death and befriending it before it's, it's the closest person in your life to die. So that you realize it's actually can be a very peaceful thing to be with someone when they're dying. And that's the other thing I worry about with the maid. I'm sure it's very peaceful, but it's very fast. Whereas with my father, for example, he died over two weeks, but the last uh, really two or three days when he was starting to go unconscious and so on, there's a, there's a settledness, there's a peacefulness, and it helps the family and probably the person who's dying, although of course I can't speak for that, do the letting go. Like it's a gradual letting go. And I think that there's merit in that. One last thing that I would say, there was a, a Roy Bonnesteel who did a program on CBC called Man Alive. He said one time, I go into nursing homes and I have patients say to me, I don't want to be a burden to my family. And when I've done workshops on death and dying, which I do and so on, and preparing for death, I'll have people say this to me, I don't want to be a burden to my family. He said, and I love this, because I think it's true, he said, be a burden to your family. We were put on earth to be a burden to one another. Mm -hmm. And isn't that our Christian calling to care for one another? So I think that's a dangerous avenue to go down of labeling somebody a burden. I never felt yeah. like my father was a burden. Yeah. And he did say, when he was still with it enough, he would say to my mother when things were difficult, and, and he would say, oh, I'm, I'm a burden. And of course, she would say, I'm not, but he was a burden to her. But, you know, we, we wanted to care for him, and we still cared for him, and we still loved him, even though, at times, he was a burden. So I loved what Roy Bonestill said, you know, we were put on this earth to be a burden to one another. Death is one of the most natural things that can happen to someone. Despite all our work to prolong life, much of it is great with vaccines and penicillin, we're all confronted with the reminder that our time here is limited. What we do with that time to make sure that everyone has the chance to live and die with community and compassion, that's up to us. Thank you to Heather and Anne for their experiences and stories today. You can find out more about their work in the description of this episode. The Rooster Crows is a regular podcast run by Lawrence Park Community Church, a United Church of Canada community here in Toronto. For more information on who we are and upcoming events, please check us out at lawrenceparkchurch.ca. This is Roberta Howie. Thank you for listening, and until next time, take care.